pray. Father, we are thankful that we come this morning to you and every day, that we stand before you not in our own strength, but in the strength and the power and the righteousness and forgiveness we have in Christ. We are thankful for him this morning as your people. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning from the word of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would revive our souls you would make us wise, that you would cause, cause our hearts to rejoice in you. That you would open up our eyes and enlighten them to your truth, which endures forever. Father, we pray this morning that in every way you would challenge us, you would grow us, and you would do so by pointing us to Jesus. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 this morning. Over the years, several books and movies and television shows have used the trope of someone wrongly accused or perhaps even wrongly convicted of a crime to help drive the storyline. Uh, one thinks of a previous generation's TV series, The Prisoner, where someone was wrongly convicted of murder and week by week by week he is seeking to clear his name. It's an, it's an easy way to create tension and create uh, suspense and drive a story. But the stakes are all too real when something like this happens in real life. Over the years, the news has highlighted stories of real people who have been wrongly convicted of a crime, have been sent to prison, and are eventually set free when the truth comes out. As a matter of fact, this happened just a few months ago. A man named Eric Riddick was convicted of killing his friend back in 1991. At the time, an eyewitness put him at the scene, but Riddick actually wasn't there. And it took more than 30 years to prove his innocence and see him set free from prison this past May. How would you feel if you were in his place? How would you feel if you were standing in the courtroom if completely fraudulent, completely false and made up accusations were made against you and your life was on the line before the court. To be honest, that kind of makes me sick to, to my stomach just thinking about being in a situation like that. This morning we're going to find a passage where this very thing happened to the Apostle Paul, where he stood before a court with false charges and his life was on the line. We're returning to our series in Acts, but before we dive in, we want to think about where we were at and pick up the narrative the last time that Pastor Rick preached. You'll remember that Paul was in Jerusalem to serve the churches there in an effort to correct wrong thinking about his position on Jews and the law. He accompanied some believers to the temple to worship. However, 
his opponents from Asia, Jews from Asia came, they spotted him, they identified him, they yelled to the crowds that, that he was committing a crime, that he was blaspheming the temple, and he caused a riot. Now that time Jerusalem was a political hotbed and so the Romans were always ready for something. They did not know what was going on, but they swooped in and grabbed Paul out of the crowd lest he be torn apart. Paul wanted to explain to the crowds that he was innocent, that these charges were not real. And he wanted an opportunity ultimately to present the gospel. So he convinced the Roman guard to let him speak to the crowd in an attempt to quiet it down. You might imagine the Roman guard thought, if this man can quiet the crowds, all the easier for me and my job. The problem is, he didn't quiet the crowds down. In fact, by talking about his belief in the resurrection, he exposed the divide among the crowds. And there became an increasing argument about whether or not the resurrection was a true and real and biblical thing. And so they had to bring Paul back into jail, into custody, until he could sort everything out. But then they found out that the Jews were plotting to attack the prison and kill Paul. So with a garrison of Roman soldiers, they swiftly moved Paul out by night and took him to Caesarea and put him into the custody of Felix, the governor of the Roman province of Judea, that he might figure all of this out. And this is where we arrive in our passage and begin looking at the events of Paul's life in Acts 24. He is being guarded as they await his accusers to arrive. So please stand as we read Acts 24 this morning. The Holy Spirit says, After five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded, To him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. 
But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of God. May he bless it. You may be seated. As we think about this passage this morning, we may do well to remember why Luke wanted to write this book, Acts, which we hold in our hands today. He not only wanted to continue his historical account of Christianity, began in his gospel, the gospel according to Luke, he also wanted to present a pattern of church health and personal discipleship for God's people. He furthermore wanted to establish the legitimacy of the Christian faith within the context of the Roman Empire. For though the gospel of Christ may reveal the spiritual bankruptcy of the empire's religious ethos, it did not produce rebels and terrorists that would threaten its stability. Yet those are the very charges brought against Paul in this passage. He stands before Felix and Tertullus has come with the Jews of Jerusalem to present the case against Paul. Some believe he is a Gentile, others believe he is a Jew. We don't really know and it's not really important. What we do know is he is a trained lawyer designed to make sure Paul is put away for good, perhaps even executed or hand it back to the Jews that they might find him guilty and execute him. And so Tertullus brings serious accusations against Paul. Charges that show him threatening the stability of Rome through sedition and sacrilege, through politics and religion. Notice in those first nine verses, he is accused of being a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. That is, he is causing political unrest and divisiveness. He is seeking to cause an uproar, an uprising among the Jews against Rome. Moreover, as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, Paul was being accused of leading an illegal religion, which, as we'll see in a minute, attacked other religions because he supposedly tried to profane the Jewish temple. In Rome, any defilement of religious sacred space was a serious crime, again, because it threatened the social order. It threatened the peace that they wanted to keep, if even by the sword. And so Paul was presented as a political and religious dissident, someone that was no friend of Rome, a clear and present danger to the unity of the empire. In the face of these allegations, Governor Felix allows Paul to make his defense. And essentially his defense is, it's not true and you can't prove it. It's not true and you can't prove it. He says, I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days, five of which we know he spent in prison in Caesarea and a couple more held in captivity in Jerusalem. That's hardly enough time to stir up an army and cause a riot. Furthermore, when the Jews found him and tried to attack him, he says, I wasn't arguing with anyone. I wasn't even speaking. I was there purified, not defiling the temple, seeking to worship the Lord. 
Paul says he is innocent of these charges. And he says, those Jews from Asia, if they have a complaint against me, why aren't they here to accuse me before you, Felix? But then something changes in Paul's speech. Between verses 13 and 14, he goes from denying all charges to making a confession. Paul, what are you going to confess to? What have you done? What are you guilty of? He says, I am innocent of these charges that have been brought before me, but this I confess to you. This is what I am guilty of. This is what you can charge me with. That according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept. That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. That's Paul's confession. That he is a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. That is how he lives his life and it affects everything about him. It's in this confession that Paul not only defends Christianity to the world, but he sets an example for us believers. Notice how Paul both aligns himself with and distinguishes himself from his Jewish accusers. Everything about this confession of belief and experience flows from this reality in verse 14 that it is all according to the way. Now that may sound odd to us because we almost universally call Christianity Christianity. But the early Christians didn't call Christianity Christianity. They called it the way. And Christians were ones who belonged to the way. It was a banner over all of Paul's confession, a statement that should fly over our lives as well. Essentially this, I live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, that is the big banner under which the rest of Paul's concession, confession will, will fly. I live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was called the way almost certainly because of Jesus' words in John 14. When talking to his disciples and talking about the, that he was going to the Father and that they should not be worried, Thomas said they were worried because they didn't know the way to the Father. And what did Jesus say? He said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Jews in the first century thought of these early believers as a mere sect, a little subdivision of Judaism like the Sadducees or the Essenes. But Paul can look at his fellow Jews and say, we both think we are worshiping Yahweh, the God of our fathers, the God of Israel, the covenant Lord. We share the scriptures, we share a history. But now that Jesus has come, something fundamental has changed. We must worship God through Jesus. That is where we meet him. There is an exclusivity there. So it's not just that Jesus is the way, but he is the only way. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way to God. Now to modern ears, that may sound harsh, but to those that understand what that means, it is refreshment, it is relief. Because this is the good news. Since Jesus is the only way to God, that means we are no longer striving to make our own way to God. We are not seeking to live up to some standard by which God will accept us because Jesus has done it for us. Jesus has provided the way through his own life, death, and resurrection. And this gospel truth about Jesus shaped everything about Paul's life. 
It was the basis for everything that follows in his confession. So this morning, if we were to follow in Paul's footsteps, even as he sought to follow in Jesus' footsteps, if we want to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus like Paul, then our confession before God, before one another, before the world should begin just like his began. All that I believe, all that I do, all that I say, all of my convictions and preferences and motivations begin with this, I live according to the way. I live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. From there we see four affirmations in Paul's confession. Four affirmations that we ourselves should be able to make as well. First, he says, I worship the living God. I worship the living God. Verse 14, this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Those accusing Paul would have said that his religious devotion was a deviation, a change from what is traditional. But Paul denies this. He makes clear that he worships the God of the Jewish patriarchs. Unlike the idols of the nations, this God reminds his people over and over and over again, there is only one true and living God, and that is he. And now that worship is offered through the work of Christ. When we first met Paul in this book of Acts, we see a man who thought glorifying God meant denying that Jesus was the Christ. He thought glorifying God meant clinging to the old covenant despite the fact that the new covenant had come. He thought glorifying God was seen in persecuting those who had grasped hold of the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus by faith. And then his blind eyes were opened. He was able to behold the glory and the authority of the risen Christ and came to understand that God was fulfilling his promises in him, that he indeed was the Christ. And so now he stands before Felix, a changed man. Now he understands the right way. The only way to worship the God of his fathers is through the knowledge brought by the gospel. Scholars will tell us that the word here for worship can be used to describe the kind of everyday service and devotion believers are to offer to God, as well as specific acts of piety and devotion in a formal religious setting. Meaning, the way he is using this word worship says there is no part of our lives that is not meant to be worship. That's how he lived, that's how we ought to live. So everything about us, how we raise our kids, how we treat our neighbors, how we daydream, how we engage on social media, how we spend our time, how we go about cutting our lawns. All of it is meant to be worship to God just as much as coming here and together singing and praying and listening to a sermon on Sunday mornings is meant to be worship to God. And notice, all of it is according to the gospel. The way we worship God is through Jesus Christ. That means more than just thinking about Jesus, more than just singing about Jesus, more than just adding Jesus' name at the end of our prayers because we think it's not going to work. God's not going to hear us if we don't say in Jesus' name at the end. It means that, that the gospel is like one of those flavor packets my kids have to put in their water. You drop this thing in, you shake it up, and now every single particle of water in that container has been flavored. You're not going to reach the bottom and say, oh, look at this, here's some plain water left. No, there's no plain water left. It's all flavored, what, what, whatever flavor you want. Likewise, every part of our lives as a Christian, every sip and drop 
that makes up who we are and, and how we move about life in this world should feel and look and become distinctly Christ-like, distinctly Christian. That's what it means to worship the living God according to the way, according to the gospel of Jesus. Second, like Paul, we should be able to say, I believe all of the scriptures. I believe all of the scriptures. Paul says, this I confess to you, that according to the way I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. In the context of his trial, Paul is speaking to two different audiences here. To Felix, the representative of Rome, he is saying, listen, Christianity is not some new religion. We didn't just appear out of the ether. He's defending the Christian faith as a legitimate religious option in the Roman Empire. What we believe, he says, is perfectly in line with the Jews because it's based in the Jewish Scriptures. And ultimately, to not follow the way is to deny some element of what God says in the Scriptures, somewhere in the law and the prophets. But he's also talking to Ananias, the high priest, and to the Jews, the, the Jewish elders that have come with him. Some were probably Pharisees. Some, at least one, were probably a Sadducee. And these leaders were themselves divided on believing certain things from the Bible. So, as most of us well know, the Sadducees largely ignored the prophetic books and eschewed anything spiritual, focusing only on the Pentateuch, on the first five books of the Bible. And to his fellow countrymen, Paul says, I am among the true Jews. For the things we believe about Christ have been testified to us in everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. All of the scriptures testify to the coming of Jesus as the Christ. As Paul will say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 1, he is the amen. He is the yes to all of God's promises to his people. So all of the scriptures point to him. That means there is no other way of reading or understanding the word of God. He believes everything God has said according to its fulfillment in Jesus. So, so he is challenging those that are his accusers. How can you say that you worship the living God? How can you say that you are faithful Jews if you don't believe all of God's word or worship Jesus to whom God is pointing us? The same should be true for every Christian today. And on one level, I think if we did a show of hands, all of us would believe, affirm that we believe everything in the Scriptures. That's good. But there are two easy ways in which Christians are tempted to betray that affirmation. The first is that we can focus on commands and forget about Jesus. We can focus on commands and forget about Jesus our heart says, give us rules, give us guidelines, and we will happily color in the lines to make ourselves acceptable to God. That is our default heart position. I will muscle my way through and make sure that God finds me acceptable by how I live my life. You talk to most any unbeliever who has any dabbling of religious belief, and that's their position. I will obey God so that I will be saved in the last day. But we forget Jesus. 
who was given so that we need not think that way. We need not live that way. The reality is we can't be good enough to be accepted by Jesus. We can never obey him enough that he will say, of course, now I love you. Now come into my kingdom. No, we cannot make ourselves holy enough for God, but by faith in Jesus, we have already been made holy and acceptable to him. So that, so that good desire to live obediently to the Lord flows out of his love for us and his salvation of us, his acceptance of us in Jesus, not in order to obtain those things apart from Jesus. Secondly, we can be tempted to focus on Jesus, but forget about the difficult, the difficult, difficult parts of Scripture. We can be tempted to focus on Jesus, but forget about or ignore the difficult parts of Scripture. So sometimes you will see popularly people say, well, I don't, I don't have a creed. My creed is Jesus. Yeah, that's basically meaningless because you have to believe something about Jesus, and now you've begun to formulate your creed. Uh, and, and popularly, there, there is a lot of younger believers who say, I, I love Jesus, but I, I don't like his people. I don't like former religion. I don't like the church. I don't like Paul because Paul is too rigid on sexual ethics. Well, here's a newsflash, friends. It's all Jesus. It's all his word. It all points to him and helps us understand how he wants us to live. Paul is his authorized representative. So Paul's sexual ethic is Jesus' sexual ethic. Paul's morality, the apostles' morality, is Jesus' morality. You you can't have a Jesus-only kind of religion. And it's not long as we live in this world that we will find some ethical demand in the Bible that doesn't line up with what is acceptable to the culture and therefore maybe not something that we would find acceptable. Sometimes it's even something fundamental to the faith. When I was in high school, I had a classmate who died suddenly at 17 from a brain aneurysm. He went from washing dishes at Big Boy to standing before God in a matter of seconds. Nothing could be done. No one knew what was going to happen. No warning signs. Just, and he's gone. And he was not someone that I knew really well, but someone that I was getting to know well. And while we were away on a youth retreat, this news came to us. And it was not just shocking that this 17-year-old who was the paragon of health just fell over for apparently no reason whatsoever. But I didn't know whether or not he was saved. And so suddenly the weight of the reality of hell pressed it on me. Where was my friend? Was he in paradise or was he awaiting judgment? I didn't feel like playing youth games. I didn't feel like horsing around at the pool. I I wanted to know where he was. And I had two friends that were so desiring to be helpful that they tried to offer comfort, they tried to offer encouragement, but it was not long until that road take them down to making this statement. Maybe he wasn't saved, but God will make an exception for him. Now I hope that is a staggering thought in your mind that someone would say that who claims to be a Christian, as much as it was staggering in my 17-year-old mind. It shook me out of thinking about his eternal fate and looking at my friends as if they weren't believers anymore. What do you mean he didn't believe in Jesus, but God's going to make an exception? 
What's the point of the Christian faith if that is true? Is not Jesus the only way to be made right by God? Is that not what we say we believe? Is that not why we worship him? And yet, how quickly that was abandoned in favor of comforting a friend. Maybe it's our friend's lifestyle. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's the way that our parents raised us. Maybe it's a commitment that we have something outside the Bible that informs how we apply and think about the Bible that is actually contrary to the Bible. And so we say, I believe all of the Scriptures, but the reality is we don't believe all the Scriptures. We have personal convictions and preferences that cause us to bend and shape and twist the Bible to fit our beliefs and preferences rather than allowing ourselves to bend to what God says even when it's difficult. If we are going to confess like Paul, I believe everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, I believe everything in the scriptures according to Christ, fundamentally, that, must means, that means we must humble ourselves before God's word. Not to speak too crassly, but we need to come to terms and believe and embrace the idea that when God wants our opinion, he will tell it to us through his word. But this isn't natural to us. So we can't just say, okay, I'm going to humble myself. We need to call out to the living God and say, humble us, Father. Humble us. Make us as moldable as the lump of clay on the potter's wheel. Shape our thinking, our understanding, so that we can rightly say, I believe everything in the scriptures according to Christ. Third, like Paul, we should be able to say, I hope in the resurrection of Christ. I hope in the resurrection of Christ. Paul says, this I confess, that according to the way, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Again, Paul is leaning on the differences among his accusers here, who were divided on this reality of a future resurrection. He affirms as true and biblical a resurrection of the dead, and then later as we'll talk about in a few minutes, when he's talking to Felix and Drusilla, he makes clear that the raising of, this, of the dead is in light of the coming judgment of God. One day all of us will stand before our Creator and have to give account for our lives. Some people find this absolutely terrifying to think about. That every secret thought, every secret deed, every public sin will be laid bare and exposed before you and judged by God. Therefore, that that last day may not seem all that appealing to you this morning. But for Paul, for Paul, it was something that brought him hope. And hope is something we all want, right? I've never been to a culture, I think I've been to eight of them now, distinct cultures, and I've never had someone say, I want to live a hopeless life. I mean, I've just never met someone like that. Have you met someone like that? I think it's a universal human norm. We want hope in this world. Sometimes people try and tap into that hope for their own means and purposes. Maybe they even genuinely believe they're going to bring hope. Many of us are old enough to remember a very distinctive political campaign poster with the candidate's face looking somewhat like Che Guevara and the, and the, and the bold words, 
hope under that face. Vote for me and you will have hope. Put me in the presidential office and I will bring hope to this nation. Interestingly, in 2015, the original creator of that image said his expectations were never met. The, the, the promise of hope ultimately fell flat once that man was elected president of the United States. We tend to grasp at just about anything to give us hope, and often we are let down. Not so with Paul. Not so with Paul. He believed that his hope in the resurrection could not possibly fall flat or fail to meet expectations because he had already seen the guarantee of its reality. Remember, we have hope, and I'm kind of drawing the connections here for us. We have hope in God because of the resurrection according to the way that is according to Christ. Meaning, just as Jesus was put to death on the cross in our place, bearing God's just judgment against our sins, God did not leave him dead, crushed under his righteous wrath. Instead, God raised Jesus up from the dead. And established him as Lord of all things and the object of saving faith never to die again. And so he makes clear to us that if Christ is raised, his people will be raised. For Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and the proof that God is willing to save sinners. That God will keep his saving promises in Christ. Thus, the resurrection of Jesus should give us an indefatigable hope in God. Because Jesus lives, we have a certain hope of what is to come. Not judgment, but eternal life. Oh, I I pray that you have that hope this morning. I pray that everyone in here, like Paul, has that unyielding certainty. That is is the hope in God that comes through Christ and His resurrection. Not a kind of wistful, faint hope, as if you are in a a terrifying darkness of sin and there might be some glimmer, some crack of light that you're straining to grab onto. No. No. The, The hope that is a glorious sunlight blazing through the terrible darkness of this sinful world, a beautiful light of certain hope in God that He will accept you now and on the last day because of what Jesus has done. If if that's not you this morning, if, if you don't have that kind of confident hope, why not? What is preventing you this very moment of grabbing hold of Jesus by faith to have that kind of hope? of admitting before God that because of your sin, you know you deserve death and hell. You deserve judgment. The thought of standing before God with no advocate, with no hope, your sin lay bare is terrifying. And yet you also believe that God sent Jesus for for you and for that very problem to be solved. To have not your righteousness be the basis of your acceptance with God, but Jesus' righteousness as the basis of your acceptance for God believing that in Him there is forgiveness and life and hope, whether for the first time to be reconciled to God and to be brought into His kingdom, or perhaps as a believer who needs to freshly grasp hold of Christ by faith in the midst of a wavering, downcast faith. Wherever you are this morning, trust Him today so that you may confidently walk out like Paul with a certain hope in God. Finally, as God's people, we should be able to make this good confession with Paul 
I strive for blamelessness. I strive for blamelessness. Paul says this, I confess to you that according to the way I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. How can we have a clear conscience? By being blameless in what we do. That doesn't mean sinless. Paul was not sinless. Just in the passage that we looked at before this, that Pastor Rick preached, we saw that uh, uh, a man did something disrespectful to Paul, and Paul said something back to him, essentially issuing judgment upon that man. But then it was revealed that this was a man in authority above Paul, a sinful man in authority above Paul. And what did Paul do? He apologized. And he said, it is not right to speak against someone in authority above you. He sought to keep his conscience clear before God and man, even when he was sinned against. The the, the point here is that right beliefs, everything else that we've seen so far in his confession, right beliefs should lead to right living. Good theology should produce godly character. We see this across the sweep of the whole Bible. But in this passage, we see Paul striving for this. I say striving because that phrase in verse 16, I always take great pains, is often used to describe athletic training in other places. So we've got the Summer Olympics coming up. I know at least one member who posted and said he hates the Olympics. I love the Olympics. I would watch them all day long. I would get the package and just sit 24 hours a day. I would watch everything. Because it is amazing to me to see what our God-designed bodies can do when pushed to the limit. I love seeing the the behind-the-scenes profiles they do on certain athletes showing all that they have done to train and make themselves ready for this event. Training is actually too light a word for it. I mean, they're all in to make it to the Olympics. Sacrificing, striving, always taking great pains to hone their skills, their muscles, their motivation and mindset for this competition. And in that way... Paul is an Olympian at making his conscience clear before God and man. And we see the fruit of that labor worked out in two ways here in Acts 24. First, we see his personal integrity. We see his personal integrity. Did you notice at the beginning of the passage the disparity between the ways that Tertullus and Paul addressed Felix? Tertullus' words are fully ironic, for he just is a blubbering fool fawning all over Felix with talk of peace and reform. And the reality is that peace was brought about by brutality and force. He was quick to employ the sword to bring about peace. The Jews actually feared and were horrified by Felix. But you wouldn't know that from Tertullus gushing. He was trying to ingratiate himself so that he would have a favorable hearing before the governor. And yet, knowing that he held his life in his hands, Paul did not engage in the same kind of rhetoric, did he? Rather than give himself over to overindulgent flattery, he merely showed courtesy and respect in verse 10. Then later, at the end of the chapter, Paul doesn't exonerate Paul. He doesn't say, you're free to go. He, keeps, he holds him, and he keeps sending for him and listening to him, then sending him back, sending for him and listening to him, and then sending him back. And he does it for two years. Why? Because Luke tells us in verse 16, he hoped Paul would give him some money. He was looking for a little payola, a little gift, so that Paul would be let go. Felix was both violent and corrupt. And think about what could have passed through Paul's mind, what may pass through our mind. You know, it's just a small bribe. 
to get me out of here, get me on my way, get me back on my mission preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. That's just how the world works. That's just how society is, and we just got to play along so that we can do what God wants us to do. That's not how Paul thought. Paul was a man of integrity. He was always striving for blamelessness before God and man. So Paul was there for two years, refusing to give Felix anything, but continuing to preach the gospel. And so this is the second way that we see his blamelessness on display. It's through his public witness, his public witness. Paul's on trial for his life. We would not be surprised to see him do whatever it takes to clear his name and get out of there. But that's not Paul. And that's not what the believer should be, any of us should be. We are to live in all ways and at all times according to the gospel of Jesus. And so that means when given the opportunity, that good news must be shared. It must be declared. But that's not often how we live, is it? Sometimes we allow fear of the consequence of those actions to close our mouths, to mute us. Sometimes we falsely believe that we we won't know what to say and we're going to make the person worse. Listen, let's just put that excuse to bed. They're going to hell. There's nothing worse than that. That doesn't matter what kind of gospel seed you throw at them, you will improve their chances of coming to know Christ if you open your mouth and speak to them. Sometimes, for a congregation like our own, it could be tempting to allow our belief in God's sovereignty, which we love and we cherish and is part of our hope in God and the fuel of our worship of God, but we allow that belief in God's sovereignty to overshadow our responsibility in God's mission. We will say, God elects His people out of His mercy, but we forget He uses His people to spread the gospel of Christ so that he might call his elect to himself. Maybe we haven't come to terms with the weight of Ezekiel chapter 33 yet. There God speaks of a watchman, a watchman that he has established to see danger coming and to warn his people. And he says there that if the people hear the warning issued by the watchman and they ignore it, they don't ready themselves for it, prepare for it, then their blood is on their own hands. The watchman has done his duty. Then he goes on to say, if the watchman sees the danger and fails to issue the warning, then the blood of the people falls on him for failing to do his duty. On more than one occasion in Acts, Paul employs this very imagery of Ezekiel chapter 33. And he says, I am innocent of your blood because I have been faithful to declaim, proclaim the gospel through the whole counsel of God to you. To unbelieving Jews and to, believing, and to believers in, in, in Ephesus, he says, I am the innocent of your blood because I have been faithful to preach the gospel, to declare good news. Paul's conscience was clear when it came to his public witness. And we see the same thing in here in in chapter 24. Just for some context, we know from history that Drusilla was gorgeous beyond her years. And Felix became obsessed with her to the point of sinfully scheming and ultimately seducing her until she left her husband and became his third wife. Now today that sounds like politics as usual, but Drusilla was someone special. She was from the, the family of Herod, and she had some Jewish blood, and they tried to keep up appearances of Jewishness. But here she is, a public adulteress. 
And so it's interesting that she asked to hear more about Paul's beliefs about this way in which good Jews should worship the Lord through Jesus. Now remember, this couple holds Paul's life in their hands. They can say, you're guilty, execute him. Whenever they want. And you're in that situation, and you're brought before this couple. And she says, tell me something about Christianity about this way. What are you going to say? Oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We're told Paul speaks about faith in Christ Jesus. And that he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And he did it for two years. He left Felix scared for his life. Because he was faithful to tell the whole counsel of God, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just pandering to what was easy, what would make it acceptable in the, in the marketplace of ideas in our culture today. But he was faithful to the scriptures. His conscience was blameless before God and before man. And notice all of this. All of this just comes in fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Luke 21. He said, nations and kingdoms will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And Paul didn't miss that opportunity. And neither should we. Will we bear witness to the gospel of Christ when given the chance? Will we strive to keep our conscience clear before those around us? So that when we stand before God on the last day, we will be able to say we were faithful to the message of righteousness in Christ for all who believe. And a just judgment for sinners who refuse to embrace God's love. When I was growing up, my dad used to regularly talk about a sermon that he once heard where the preacher asked this question, if you were ever put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there actually be enough evidence to convict you? This morning, we might say it like this. Are we able to confess to being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ like Paul did? Can we say with him, I confess to you that according to the way I worship the God of our Jewish fathers, Believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Let's pray. Father, it is only by grace that Paul can make that confession. It is only by your strengthening power in his life through your word and your spirit and the encouragement brought on by the church that you were able to establish him in the faith and allow him to live faithfully before you and before the world. So Father, we pray for that grace right now as well. We pray that you will allow your word, Paul's example, recorded as Scripture to land hard on us, both as an encouragement and as a conviction. The Father, we will understand that Paul is just a man, but a man who desperately loves Jesus. 
And so while we are mere men and women and children, if we will likewise love Jesus, this is the kind of life that He will produce within us. Father, we pray for that grace. In a time where our culture is increasingly squeezing us and seeking to shape us and mold us, we pray, Father, that we would resist conformity to that culture. That we would resist being wound up by false teaching coming. There's so many voices that we hear on social media and the news claiming to be wisely guiding us in politics and in spirituality and even claiming the name of Christ. Father, we pray that you will blow that fog away as we concentrate our minds and our hearts on seeking your face directly from your word, that we might hear your clear voice. That you might topple the idols of our hearts and help us to truly worship you through Christ in all that we do and all that we are. Father, humble us that you might make us servants effective for your kingdom that bring glory to your Son. We pray these things in his name.